we continue in our study in Romans, and I want to put the text in front of us, then we'll do uh, a quick logical recap of where we are in, the, uh, in Paul's uh, unpacking of uh, the condition that we find ourselves in hum uh, as humans uh, and our, the reason for God's need to act. We're in Romans chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 12 through 16. Hear now God's word. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who, have not, uh, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness that their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by King Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we continue to rest in your strength given us by the Spirit, secured to us by the very knowledge that our Lord and Savior sits at the right hand. We pray that as we continue to uh, desire to know what it is to have your law written on our hearts, to enjoy the freedom that comes from the gospel, we ask that you would again bless the preaching of your word and we ask, Lord, that whatever is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So I do this regularly because there's such a sense in which, because Paul writes such amazingly tight paragraphs and sentences, that we can pull those thoughts out of their context very easily, especially as we unpack each new nuance or revelation, revelation uh, ex uh, exposition on these core truths of the gospel that Paul is expounding as he writes this letter to the church in Rome. And to remind us where we are, Paul has affirmed in uh, verse chapter 1, verse uh, 16 and 17, that he is not ashamed of the good news, that is, Jesus's peace that comes through his accomplished work on the cross that will transform the very world itself and will be ultimately consummated in Christ's return. All of the good news. And again, remember, we are seeing Paul push against the good news that is proclaimed by Roman emperors. That is to say, the same grammar and language is regularly used by Caesar Augustus and at the time of this writing by Nero, who is proclaiming the second golden age of the Pax Romana, that the good news is that peace has come to the world through the Romans. And Paul is pushing hard against that notion as he says, no, peace comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. King Jesus' gospel is the only peace that will endure and last. And in the midst of that, he has then unpacked the fact that we have often hidden as human beings. And again, Paul's context here is he's not saying some 
somebody else somewhere else. He is, he is describing the shared human condition. Whether one is uh, at this time a Jewish believer who knows the history of Israel, that that amazing passage we just read from Exodus, that literally the next chapter is going to be those same people saying, did you bring us to the wilderness to die? We can very quickly, even as those who experience the power of God, begin to hide that truth because of the pressures and our own sinful desires. And so in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul has reminded us that justice is coming, that there is injustice in the world, that there are those who reject who God is and his character and his nature, and that will be set right. Because 21, uh, 20 and 21 talks about the suppression of that truth. And in verse 24, he talks about how tragically that in God's wisdom, he turns us over to our own desires and that it is a real possibility. And the challenge is, of course, that those sins are not just things that affect me, but they affect others. It would be probably more handy if all of my sins only affected me. But the challenge is that there are implications to the brokenness and sin of this world as we live in communities. And these sins that are listed in verses 24 and following are not sins that only impact the people who commit them. And there's something that struck me again this week that so often we work hard at making sure the perpetrators know that they are forgiven, whether that is uh, the slight sins that we perpetrate or the more significant and weighty sins that bear down on people's lives for the rest of their lives. That we, if you'll tolerate a slight parenthesis here, we need to make sure that we are also creating within that same community the safety for those who have been victims and the ability for those who have suffered the consequences of others' sins to feel like they can be honest and transparent within the community of faith. I was struck again by another circumstance where a person who had been abused uh, sexually, kept it from everyone for 30 years. And some incidences in their life brought it all crashing back, and they're experiencing horrible PTSD. That no matter how deep they thought it, they had buried it. It comes rushing back to the surface. And it's been a shock to all who know this person. And they're a part of a church, and it's very far away. But it is nonetheless true that oftentimes the most needy of love and comfort, those who have suffered uh, sexual assault, those who struggle with infertility or have had um, miscarriages, those who struggle with mental illness, those who have uh, in past lives or uh, before coming to faith or whatever period of their life, uh, have wrestled with the tragedy of having had an abortion. 
one or any of these tragedies that one way or another are difficult for us to say out loud in the church and to enjoy what Paul says in chapter uh, 1, verse 16, is the freedom that comes from the gospel. And so I just want to affirm out loud as your pastor that whatever we want to be as a community of faith, it is a place that, yes, of course, acknowledges that perpetrators can be forgiven, but not at the expense of the silence of those who have been victims. And the reality is that if we are not a place where people can be open about the brokenness and sin that's either been perpetrated against them or that they have perpetrated, we will find that very often evil surprises us, that it's a lot closer to home than we might imagine, and that without the power of the gospel, restoring both victim and perpetrator, the gospel is only half preached and only half embraced. And so in, the, in that spirit, I just want to encourage that I imagine, given statistics, there are people on this Zoom who have been victims of things that, for whatever reason, inside the church are hard for us to say out loud, for us to be known. And I want to suggest that we need to be and desire to be and can be a community of faith where those parts of our history do not have to be hidden for us to either feel like we are whole members of the church because we're afraid of being judged, or as is often true, because we're afraid of taking the risk because we're unlikely to be believed. I can say that in my own life, I was propositioned twice by Christian leaders. Once at a camp, which I can't remember what happened afterwards. I was about nine or 10. And another time in junior high school, which I actually told my parents about, and in that case, unfortunately, um, again, that sense that, gosh, it can't really be true, rang true, and nothing was done. Tragically, 10 years later, that person was in jail for committing unspeakable crimes against other young people. I say that not for any other reason than to say that it is just true that unless we can speak out loud and share with one another, the reality is that the victims will be the ones who continue to pay the heaviest price, isolated and afraid that they may some way not be able to enjoy the full freedom that comes from redemption in Christ, not just for those who perpetrate, but full healing and wholeness for those who suffer in a broken and fallen world. Paul is advocating as he speaks for justice, as he speaks honestly to the brokenness of sin, that of all places, the church should be the last place that is silent or quiet or re requiring others to bear these burdens silently. In the spirit of that, 
I want to encourage you, this is not an exhaustive list, but just uh, folks I was able to make contact with in a short period of time. If you are a victim, my encouragement is to give us an opportunity to care for you, to work against the lie that you are alone or isolated or somehow half a believer, half whole. Is the power of, of being in community and having people walk alongside. So I, I spoke with uh, Belinda Tanner, who has uh, great wisdom and experience in this. I touched base with Jamie Abrera about her uh, being willing to listen, and also my wife, Artis. I don't know who you might feel comfortable reaching out to, but know that in the life of a church, there will be things that will just like in this woman's life that I found out about uh, recently, even in the church, there will be something someday that will trigger those memories, that you won't be able to keep it in your whole life. It wasn't designed to stay in there, it will kill you. And we want to be a place where brothers and sisters can come alongside, not to fix, and this is so key, not to fix. Only Christ can fix, but to comfort and to walk alongside, to disciple, not to change. It is only the Spirit that changes us, and we point one another to the power of the Spirit. It is in that context, which I know it sounds odd to keep going on in the sermon, but it. it I couldn't get it out of my head. There's just too many instances I am now aware of where the people who needed the strength of the church did not feel for one reason or another they could utilize it. And we want to say out loud, we may do it in an imperfect way, but we want to be a place for victims and not just perpetrators, to be comforters and to be a hospital that receives people restored to the full strength and power of what it means to be free in Christ. Paul is warning in the section we have now that we should not underestimate the power of the Spirit as people are called to faith to have the very power of the law written on their hearts. The context here, because he's about to talk about Jewish believers is that the work of God in the law, that is to say what we read this morning, what uh, Monty prayed uh, for us, which is that we would love God and love neighbor, that law that summarizes the truth of who Christ is and who we are in Christ is true even of the more recent believers who haven't had the luxury of growing up in the faith. And so now for the first time as we enter into verse 12, Paul is drawing a distinction between Gentile believers and what he's going to talk about in the next section, which is Jewish believers in Christ. And so he transitions from saying there were those who don't have the law and they will be judged by God because they have hidden the truth of who God is. And then there are thou those who are coming to faith who have heard and are doing the word. And again, uh, the Greek here, and uh, 
it's debated, but we're going with the group that is saying Paul is talking about uh, Gentile believers here as he transitions to those who hear and do God's word. These are folks who are listening to the preached gospel, who are hearing the word and are doing the word of God. And that's what we hear in verse 13. Right action is righteousness, and those right actions are justified. Now, again, the context here is not salvation, but the human struggling to apply God's word in his life or her life in such a fashion as to reflect the character and nature of God. And so we know that the desire here is to reinforce that right action will be recognized by God. And that even if it's foolishness to the world, acting in line with God's law will ultimately always be declared justified, right, when Christ returns. In verse 14, we are talking about how they are uh, didn't have the law. That is to say, those who didn't grow up in the covenant, didn't grow up hearing the Shema, didn't grow up going to Jerusalem, or at least seeking to at least once in their life go to Jerusalem, going regularly uh, into synagogues and hearing and memorizing the word of God. Paul is recognizing that the Roman believers, the Gentile believers, haven't grown up being immersed in the richness of Scripture. Paul's going to talk about that being an advantage, to be sure, in the next section. But right now, he is saying that as wonderful as that may be, God's ability to write the law on our own hearts is not limited to whether or not we grew up in the faith. With all of those privileges, those privileges do not restrain God's ability to make the life and light of the gospel dwell richly in those who come to faith later in their lives. What is important, Paul says, is right action. Those things that are in line with love God and love neighbor. In the context, Paul is going to be warning long-term believers and those who are born in the faith not to judge or feel superior to those who've come to faith later in their life, as if uh, because they've been in the family longer, whether or not they act in line with the law, they are somehow ranked differently. That's not true of the way God loves his people, which should affirm us again, and even what I was speaking about earlier, there just are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There are no adopted children who have more rights than the others, because all of the rights were given to us by our big brother. Verse 15 talks directly about Jeremiah 31, 33. It is, uh, if, if you look, uh, and you are uh, knowledgeable of Greek, the structure grammatically is the same here in Romans 15 as it is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, 33, where he talks about writing the law of God in that case, primarily on, at least initially, the hearts of his people after uh, the judgment and after the uh, exile to Babylon. 
that he will write on their hearts. This is in the same context of the promises to give us a heart of flesh, taking away our heart of stone. And so now Paul is using this language that was given to the Jewish people in the midst of the turmoil of the fall of the southern uh, of Judah. He is now using that very same language for the promise of what happens to the believer who comes to faith later, the Gentile, the one who is born, uh, not born into the faith in the same way that a covenant child is born into the faith. That great promise of writing the law on our hearts reminds us in the midst of this that even as Paul is pointing to the right actions and the fact that those right actions will be justified by God, we have to uh, take great delight again at what Paul is saying in verse 15, because I'm not writing anything on my heart. Who's doing the writing? How is that being done? Of course, it is by the grace of God, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life that the law of God is being written deeply on their heart. And therefore, the manifestation, the outworking of that is the right actions that those believers are doing. And they are equal with those who have grown up and always been a part of the people of God. Ultimately, what we're talking about then is comfort and caution that Paul is warning that we should not minimize the outward impacts of the Holy Spirit, but that we are also being comforted that the way in which God's law dwells richly in our hearts is by the work of the Holy Spirit, not the outward efforts causing the law to be written on our hearts, but the Holy Spirit writing the law on our hearts that we might reflect that law in our actions and in our words. In verse 16, finally, Paul says that on that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by King Jesus. What is Paul saying there? Well, uh, in finishing up verse 15, he is saying that even though a believer's conscience at any given moment may sometimes accuse and may sometimes comfort, that in the end, it is not our own personal judgments or conscience or those of others, but it is God himself who will judge what happens secretly and in public, and that that is our comfort. It is the peace that we have in a world where Within and outside the church, uh, we can wonder how we will be perceived. Even when we are comforted, we can still doubt that comfort. We can wonder if God is seeing or hearing. But it is, in the end, Christ who will judge. And for Paul, as he's writing, not soon after, will himself be under a death sentence, being judged by the gospel preacher of the age, Caesar, as being unfit and a troublemaker. 
We know these words are not uh, platitudes for Paul, nor does he mean them to be platitudes for his people. They are meant to be a sure comfort that in the midst of times of difficulty and injustice and calamity of nature, that we know that the king reigns and that because of the gospel and because of the resurrection, we know that the judgments of this world, even if they claim to be those who bring peace, are not the ultimate and final judgments. Even when the church fails to care for one another well and comfort either the victim or show forgiveness as it was encouraged uh, and as in the scripture from uh, Matthew this morning, 70 times seven, when we fail to forgive and when we fail to restore, even in the church's failings, Christ is bigger. And that all those who are in secret or in public have been poorly treated will be declared right in the midst of Christ's reign. We need not fear. And that, that really is the power of Romans 1 through 4. That when all of the worst that sin and our own conscience can press upon us, that when God declares that he will judge rightly, fear is removed because fear has to do with condemnation. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We ask that you would again give us the ongoing outworkings of our hearts. Lord, we know that as individuals and as your people corporately, we desire to be reflectors of your glory. We want to be doers of right action, which means creating all that we can that embodies who you are. Lord, we ask that you would honor the desires of our hearts to be a place that is safe and healing, that is transforming because of the gospel that leads people into freedom and out of the bondage of all of those sins that we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us, that we might know again the freedom of having your love and your law written on our hearts. And may we act fearlessly to live out that great law of loving God and loving neighbor for your glory and honor in Christ's name. Amen.